The talk you're about to hear is by Three Jewels Lay Senior, Richard von Sturmer. The uh, Dharma talk this evening, the 12th of May 2020, uh, the title is Eduardo Galeano, The Hunter of Stories. Uh, Eduardo Galeano is a writer whose work is always uh, relevant. I gave a Dharma talk on his writing back in 2008. I think when we were in our first sendo in Par Road. And it feels like a good time to revisit him, 12 years on. I'll be reading from several of his books that were published after 2008. He's a, a master storyteller who hunted down stories from world history. Uh, the great thing about stories is uh, they can inspire us, they can entertain us, they can uh, enrich us. Um, and with, often within uh, Eduardo Galeano's stories, uh, when we read them, we can feel outraged about the injustices they reveal. And this outrage is a, a good thing because it confirms our sense of justice it strengthens our commitment to what is good and just and empowers us to live a life as best we can in harmony with all beings. A little bit of background. Uh, he was born in Uruguay in 1940 and he died in 2015. In 1973, when a military coup took power in Uruguay, he was imprisoned and later forced to flee, going into exile in Argentina. His book, Open Veins of Latin America, was banned by the right-wing military government, not only in Uruguay, but also in Chile and Argentina. I, I got this from the Wikipedia page on Eduardo, but he says somewhere in his writing, he says, in fact, that uh, his, his book, Open Veins of Latin America, was actually available in bookshops in Uruguay for a few months. You could buy it because he thought that the censors thought it was a, um, a, 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 a medical text of an anatomy, Open Veins in Latin America. But they soon twigged that, in fact, that was far from the case. 
1976, he married Helena Villagra. And in that same year, the military took power in Argentina in a bloody, bloody coup. And his name was added to the list of those condemned to death. So he fled again, this time to Spain, where he wrote his famous trilogy, Memory of Fire. Described as the most powerful literary indictment of colonialism in the Americas. He once said of himself, I am a writer obsessed with remembering, with remembering the past of America and above all that of Latin America, intimate land condemned to amnesia. Intimate land condemned to amnesia. There's a constraint, uh, no, there's a, there's a constant refrain that runs through his writing. This shouldn't be overlooked. This is worth noting. This adds to our understanding of the world. Eduardo Galeano was a tireless chronicler of the absurd who celebrated the human spirit. He, he died um, a year or two before Trump's presidency, and I'm sure that he would have had a, a field day collecting stories about Trump, that thoroughly despicable man. So and, um, in the spirit of Eduardo Galeano, here's a, here's a recent story. On May the 6th, 2020, Trump visited a face mask factory in Phoenix, Arizona. As usual, he refused to wear a face mask, even when standing next to a bin full of hundreds of masks. At that point, there were 70,000 deaths in the United States from COVID-19. Now there are 80,000. In the background, at full volume, Guns N' Roses version of Paul McCartney's Live and Let Die blasted out from the factory's loudspeakers. It's clear that um, Trump and his administration are willing to live and let die, to sacrifice thousands of lives and to turn a blind eye to the great suffering of many of its citizens in order to oil the wheels of capitalism and get the consumer economy up to speed again. Uh, I always think of the situation with, with the presidency of Donald Trump as, as a nightmare. And I read recently that a great uh, New York writer, Paul Oster, uh, he said the same thing in an interview, that it really is each, each, each day waking up to a nightmare, an ongoing nightmare. An absurd, an absurd nightmare. How can this guy have ever become president? In fact, he's not a president, he's just a false president. He's a, a snake oil salesman. And confronted by the daily absurdities, all the blatant manifestations of the three poisons, greed, anger, and delusion, and Trump embodies them all. Uh, it's natural that we can become discouraged. I'm sure many of us 
do. That it's okay to feel discouragement. It only means that at that particular moment we're disconnected from courage. Courage is always there. It's our inner resilience. We just need to reconnect with our innate courage and carry on knowing that things are always changing. Nothing is fixed. Every dog has his day. As a country, we're adapted, we've adapted to the changes triggered by COVID-19 and we can take heart in our ability to adapt and to see our way through difficult circumstances. And courage or fearlessness is one of the qualities of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva fearlessly helps those who are in need, those who are afflicted and suffering. In our present COVID-19 world, it's clear that nurses, doctors and healthcare workers are fulfilling the role of the Bodhisattva and a number of them have lost their lives in doing so. I have an old friend, an old school friend, Chris Painter, who like me is in his early 60s. He's a, a male nurse in England and has committed himself to working on the front line of the National Health Service in London. A few days ago he sent me a photo of himself wearing his protective masks and his hazmat suit. So let's, um, let's have a few stories from Galliano. The first, uh, first two are from his book Children of Days. 20th of February, World Day of Social Justice. At the end of the 19th century, Juan Pio Acosta lived near Uruguay's border with Brazil. In those lonely parts, his work kept him on the road, moving from town to town. He travelled by stagecoach, along with eight other passengers in first, second and third class. Juan Pio always brought a third class ticket, which was the least expensive. He never understood why there were different prices. Everyone had the same seats, whether they paid more or paid less, jammed in, eating dust, jolted relentlessly. He never understood why until one bad winter day when the wagon got stuck in the mud. The coachman ordered, first class, stay where you are, second class, get off, and those in third, start pushing. Another one from Children of Days, 17th of March. Uh, in this book, he has a whole year and each day he tells a, a different story. So this is from the 17th of March. They knew how to listen. 
Carlos and Gudrun Linkersdorf were born and raised in Germany. In the year 1973, these two illustrious professors arrived in Mexico. They entered the world of the mayors in Toyaba, a community uh, in Mexico, a native community, and they introduced, introduced themselves by saying, we have come to learn. The Indians remained silent. After a while, one of them explained the silence. This is the first time anyone has told us that, that they've just come to learn, not to take something from the Mayas, but just, they've just come to learn. And they remained, Gudrun and Carlos, learning year after year. From the Mayan language, they learned that no hierarchy separated subject from object. Because I drink the water that drinks me. I drink the water that drinks me, and I am watched by all that I watch. I am watched by all that I watch. And they learned to greet people in the Mayan way. I'm another you. You're another me. The water that drinks me. I drink the water that drinks me. And I am watched by all that I watch. In Zen we say that the donkey looks at the well. And the well looks at the donkey. Everything relates to everything else. Everything is interconnected. What happens to me also happens to you. This is the lesson that we learn from a pandemic. We're all in the same boat. In regard to this interconnectedness, there's a haiku by Shiki. Every year, thinking of the chrysanthemums, being thought of by them. Every year, thinking of the chrysanthemums, being thought of by them. And in regard to I am another you, you're another me, there's this case from the Blue Cliff Record, case 68. It involves two Zen teachers. Yangshan asked Sansheng, what's your name? Sansheng said, Yangshan. Yangshan said, Yangshan is my name. Sansheng said, my name is Sansheng. Yangshan roared with laughter. I'm another you, you're another me. And it's, it is sort of humorous, it is funny that we keep up the facade of being different, of being unique, of being a separate individual. Zen masters see through this facade and enjoy the joke. And now uh, a few from his book, Hunter of Stories. Old Folks Contest. A few 
millennia ago, give or take a year or two, the jaguar, the dog and the coyote held a competition. Which of them was the oldest of the old? As a prize, the winner would get to eat the first food they found. From a ramshackle, from a ramshackle cart, bumping its way down a hill, fell a bag filled with corn tortillas. Who deserved the treasure? Which of them, which of them was the oldest of the old? The jaguar said that he had seen the world's first dawn. The dog said that he was the only survivor of the great flood. The coyote said nothing. His mouth was full. Of course, um, coyote is the great trickster figure in um, North American and South American mythology, always full of tricks. And this having a competition has parallels in Zen. There's some, once or twice in Zen stories, uh, master or students have a, have a competition. And this is one of them. On a leisurely summer day, Zhao Zhou, the great master, Zhao Zhou, and his disciple, Wen Yuan, were sitting in his room. Zhao Zhou suddenly had a bright idea. Wen Yuan, let us enter into a contest as to which of us can identify himself with the lowest thing imaginable. It was agreed that the winner would play the loser a cake. That's in good Zen style. It's the, the winner pays the loser. Wen Yuan gladly accepted the challenge, but deferred to the master to start. Zhao Zhou began, I am a donkey. Wen Yuan, I am the donkey's buttocks. Zhao Zhou, I am the donkey's feces. Wen Yuan, I am a worm in the feces. Hmm. Zhao Zhou could go no further and asked, What are you doing in the feces? Wen Yuan replied, I'm spending my summer vacation there. Thereupon Zhao Zhou said, You win. Now, give me the cake. And continuing with Hunters of Stories, this one's entitled, This Shoe. Raphael Bieber picked it up. This shoe, the one you're looking at, has a story. He told me it. He told me it had belonged to a patient who had trouble breathing. Sometimes a machine or medication opened his lungs for a time, but then the air would abandon the suffocating man, no matter how much he implored it to come back. One night, in his distress, the fellow threw his shoe at the window pane. Crash! At last, air came into the house and into his body, and he slid into a deep sleep after so many bad nights. When he awoke, 
the floor was littered with shards of glass. But they were not from his window. Not from a window at all. They were what remained of the mirror, his mirror, shattered into a thousand pieces by the shoe. what comes to mind when we chant an affirming faith in mind things are things because of mind as mind is mind because of things body and mind are not two Rashi Kepler relates that after many years in Japan when he finally saw into his true nature when the illusion of an ego self was shattered all his allergies and the insomnia, insomnia that had plagued him just disappeared. There's a sort of a parallel story about the tricks the mind can play on us uh, from the Zen tradition. This one is told by a Chinese master, Yan. Once there was a monk who had kept the precepts all his life. As he was walking one night, he stepped on something that squished, which he imagined to be a frog, a mother frog laden with eggs. Mortified at the thought of having killed a pregnant frog and all her spawn. When the monk went to sleep that night, he dreamed that hundreds of frogs came to him demanding his life. He was utterly terrified. Come morning, the monk went to look for the frog he had squashed and found that it had only been an overripe eggplant. Next story is the sea. Uh, this is uh, Eduardo's wife comes into this one, Helena. For hours, or maybe years, Helena had been sitting by the sea that began at her feet and penetrated her eyes and lungs. To leave it made her sad. To never have to leave it, she put little wheels on the sea and took it with her as if it were her shadow. Because the sea, like her, was made of sun and salt. And we can add water, salt water. I'm reminded I grew up on the North Shore uh, in Auckland, just over the road from the beach, from Milford Beach. And I spent a lot of my childhood by the beach. It always, it was always difficult to leave, leave the beach and the sea and, and come back home. When I read this story, this very brief account, uh, I immediately thought of a Zen story. And it goes like this. There was once a salt doll who went on a pilgrimage. After a long journey across the desert, with the sun beating down overhead, she arrived at the edge of the sea. She was fascinated by this vast, moving body of water, unlike anything she had ever encountered before. So she asked, What are you? 
And the sea replied, I am the sea. Then she asked, But what is the sea? And the sea answered, I am me. I don't understand, said the salt doll. But I would like to understand. What can I do? The sea simply said, Touch me. With that, the salt doll timidly touched the sea with the tip of her toes and experienced a glimmer of understanding. As she withdrew her foot, she saw that her toes had gone and she cried out, Where are my toes? What have you done to me? The sea replied, You have given something of yourself in order to understand. It was a little strange to lose part of her body, and yet the salt doll knew that she had to continue. So she slowly entered deeper and deeper into the sea, and as she felt more of herself melting into the water, she un her understanding became stronger and stronger. At the last moment, when a wave washed over her head and the final bit of herself dissolved, the salt doll exclaimed, Now I know who I am. I am the sea. This is a story of um, dissolving barriers, of merging into something far greater than our limited self. If you're working on a koan, it's a story about letting go, letting go of everything and merging with mu or with who. Now I know who I am. I am the sea. And uh, then Galeano follows it with another short story entitled Aphrodite. Aphrodite is, Aphrodite is the, uh, the Greek goddess, Venus uh, in Roman mythology. And he, he refers to his, his grandchildren in this story. Not long ago, Catalina and Felipe discovered the sea and nobody could wrest them from the water. They spent their days playing in the waves, their toys, shovels and pails abandoned on the sand. One night I told them, once upon a time there was a woman named Aphrodite. She was born from the foam. It seems to me you were too. The following morning I heard screams coming from the waves. It was them shouting at the foam, Mama! In the closing section of Hunter of, Ta Hunter of Stories, which was um, published after Galliano's death, he has a section of um, stories about his books, about their sort of life in the world after they were published, and people who carried them around the world with them. Uh, there's one story, uh, one of his books, 
save the life of a of a of a person he heard of um, he, who was shot in some some altercation in some country and Galliano's book actually had um, the bullet had entered the book, not the guy's chest. And he eventually met Galliano and presented him with the book with a with a bullet hole in it. This is one um, one story that he got a letter about. Marie Dominique Perrault taught at a high school in Geneva. She wrote to me that in the middle of the in the middle of 1995, a fire raised the school, leaving nothing but a pile of smoking ruins. The next day, one of the teachers defied the order to stay clear and returned from the skeleton of the building with a half-burnt book. It was badly singed, but the title was legible, more or less, Memoir de Feu. The French edition of my first volume of Memory of Fire it was the only object to have survived the flames. In the letter, the teacher remarked, it is, as, it is as if the fire wanted to sign its work. She added, This reminds me of what Jean Cocteau said when asked what he would save if his house were burning. He answered, the fire. Because Jean Cocteau is a great poet, a really wonderful poetic answer, very Zen answer. What would you save if your house was burning? Your laptop? Your mobile? Your cell phone? Or maybe a, a box containing family photos, or a precious book. Something that you're really, really, really attached to. But no, Cocteau just said, if his house was burning, it'd be the fire that it'd bring out. The last book, actually no, it's not the last book, but um, Sick last book that I'll read from, I'll read two passages from, is called Mirrors. The title is Grandparents. For many people of black Africa, ancestors are the spirits that live in the trees beside your house or in the cow grazing in the field. Your ancestors could also be any spirit that decides to accompany you on your voyage through the world, even if he or she was never a relative or acquaintance. The family has no borders, explains Subufu Somme of the Dagara people. Our children have many mothers and fathers, as many as they wish, and the ancestral spirits the ones that help you make your way are the many grandparents that each of you has, as many as you wish. As many grandparents that each of you have, 
as many as you wish. This story really um, resonates with me because um, as a Zen student, I and all of us, all, all our will be Zen students, we, we put many Zen ancestors, enlightened men and women who walk beside us on the way. They really are our companions in the Dharma. They struggled in the past just as we struggle in the present. We can really take heart in our, our Zen ancestors and read their stories. And if we work on koans, we, um, we really sort of, our eyebrows are entwined. As the Zen phrase goes, we really get to know Chao Zhou and Wang Po and Lin Shi and all the other great Zen teachers. We get to know them really intimately and encouraged by their efforts and their teachings, we too can realize our true self. There is no self. The other story from Mirrors is entitled Vermeer. Vermeer uh, is, uh, of course, was the great Dutch painter. And Galliano writes, Vermeer, chronicler of the ordinary, painted only his home and a bit of his neighbourhood. His wife and daughters were his models, and domestic chores were his subjects. Always the same never the same. In the household routine, Vermeer, like Rembrandt, knew how to unveil the suns in that dark northern skies denied, knew how to unveil the suns that the dark northern skies denied him. In his paintings, there are no hierarchies. Nothing and no one is more or less luminous. The light of the universe vibrates secretly as much in the glass of wine as in the hand that offers it. In the letter as much as the eyes that read it. In a warm, in a warm tapestry as much as in the unworn face of the girl watching. These are all details from Vermeer's paintings. The light of the universe vibrates secretly as much in the glass of wine as in the hand that offers it. The Blue Cliff Record, case 86. We have Yun Men's Everyone Has Her Own Light. And it goes like this. Yun Men said to the assembly, everyone has her own light, though when you try to see it, you cannot. Everything is darkness. What is everybody's light? And he answered himself, the temple storeroom. 
the Tower Gateway. We can say the teapot, the ironing board, everything and everyone has its own light. The tui calling in the back garden, the garbage truck rattling down the street. Many of us have appreciated uh, patches of sunlight during lockdown. Uh, I know that we've appreciated in the, in, the, in the really extraordinary fine weather that we've had during this period of just going outside and warming ourselves on the back steps in the sun. And also, um, I've appreciated the way the rooms of our house change in the light, in the sunlight. You see tables and chairs in literally a, a different light, being at home for so much. Our practice of Zazen helps us to become more open, to receive the world, to uncover our own light, and to become lighter, to become less burdened by things. One more from Mirrors. Darwin's Voyage Young Charles Darwin did not know what to do with his life. His father encouraged him thus, You will be a disgrace to yourself and all your family. At the end of 1831, he left. After five years navigating South America, the Galapagos and other far-flung far realms, he returned to London he brought with him three giant tortoises, one of which died in the year 2007 in a zoo in Australia. He came back a different man. Even his father noticed. Why? The shape of his head is quite altered. Darwin brought back more than tortoises. He brought back questions. His head was teeming with questions. And uh, these questions propelled him into seeking answers. There's a burning question. If you put this burning question then, there'll be an answer. You'll find an answer. And of course he wrote The Origin of the Species, a book that transformed our understanding of the world. Uh, his father noticed, his father, according to the story, noticed how the shape of his head was quite altered. In the 19th century, um, there's phrenology, it's like a pseudoscience that you could sort of, uh, by the, the bumps on a person's head, you could tell what they were thinking and what their character was like. There's a parallel story that I really like sort of a fable, really, uh, from our Zen tradition. That goes like this. At the age of 32, the second ancestor-to-be, that's the second Zen, Zen ancestor-to-be, Hui Ke, 
settle down at a monastery to do zazen. After eight years had passed in silence, he had a sudden vision of a divine being who said, If you want to acquire results, why be stuck here? The great way is not far off. Go south. Recognizing this divine help, he took the name Shin Kuang, spiritual light. The next day, his head hurt as if he had been stabbed. While his teacher was trying to cure it, a miraculous voice was heard saying, it is, it is his bones changing. This is no ordinary illness. When Shen Kong told his teacher about seeing the spirit, the teacher inspected his head and found five lumps like mountain peaks. He said, these signs are auspicious. You will become awakened. The self that the spirit directed you to must refer to the great being Bodhisattva at Shaolin Monastery. He should be your teacher. And of course, uh, Shen Kuang traveled south and studied under Bodhidharma and became our second Zen ancestor. And the, the five bumps on his head appeared like mountain peaks resemble the mountain uh, where Shaolin Monastery was located. We don't have to take this story literally, but the underlying message is if we sincerely practice, if we sincerely practice then, then our lives will be changed, will be transformed, transformation will take place. Okay, um, one, well, one more from, mirror, from Mirrors. This is entitled Insolence. The, uh, the story of Jesse Owens, the black American athlete who won four gold medals at the 1930 Olympics, much to Hitler's displeasure, is well known. This is a, a less known story. In the 1936 Olympics, Hitler's country of birth was defeated by the soccer team from Peru. The referee, who disallowed three Peruvian goals, did what he could and more to avoid displeasing the Führer. But Austria lost four to two. The following day, soccer and Olympic officials set things straight. The match was annulled not because an Aryan defeat at the hands of an attacking line known as the Black Steamroller was inadmissible, but because the officials said fans had run onto the field before the end of the match. Peru had to exit the Olympics, and Hitler's country, Austria, won silver. Italy, Mussolini's Italy, took the gold. Okay, we've got time for one final story. This is from 
memory of fire. They carry life in their hair. For all the blacks that get crucified or hung from iron hooks stuck through their ribs, escapes from Suriname's 400 coastal plantations never stop. Uh, Suriname is a small country at the top of South America, bordering Brazil and Guyana. Deep in the jungle, a black lion adorns the yellow flag of the runaways. For lack of bullets, their guns fire little stones or bone buttons. But the impenetrable thickets are their best ally against the Dutch colonists. Before escaping, the female slaves steal grains of rice, corn and wheat, seeds of bean and squash. Their enormous hairdos serve as granaries. When they reach the refuges in the jungle, the women shake their heads and thus fertilize the free land. We can see how world leaders at the moment, Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Trump in the United States, to name but three, are planting seeds of discord, of anger and division. Then we have our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who in her own way is planting seeds of compassion and understanding. Will New Zealand be a better society when we come out of the pandemic? A society that takes better care of its vulnerable members? Who knows? We just have to continue cultivating our own plot of ground at home, at work, on the mat doing what needs to be done. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I I
The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.